we'll find in Scripture a picture of the hymn we just sung. The warnings, the danger, the struggle, the glories of the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 through verse 17. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight the paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the words of the book of Hebrews as they come to us as an inspired text, as the very word of God. We pray that just as the writer of the Hebrews has been expressing throughout, that we might listen and heed the word of God, that we would not harden our hearts in unbelief, but humbly receive that word and to find that that word is piercing into the inner man, and, and searching us, trying us, and improving us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we find ourselves here uh, in the practical portion of the book of Hebrews, having considered uh, in such detail the priesthood of Jesus Christ in chapters 2 through 10, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, we've come into that more practical section where he takes... Uh, the doctrine, and he applies it to the Christian life. Uh, sometimes, I think, in surprising ways. We had been in chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 3, uh, been considering the subject of faith in a kind of detailed way. But now a new theme is taken up in chapter 12, verse 4, in which he, uh, which he continues through verse 17. One which was brought up in his discussion of faith, as we'll see in a moment, namely... That of the place of afflictions in the Christian life. That's the present subject, afflictions. The trouble with afflictions, as you know, is that we don't know what to make of them. The entire book of Job uh, was written in order uh, to make that point clear. We all relate to Job because uh, even if our sufferings are not as great as his, we understand uh, the plight and the trial of faith that suffering presents it to him. We don't know what to make of our sufferings, and even worse, we tend to draw the wrong conclusions in the midst of uh, afflictions. And it is because of this that afflictions, um, they, they produce uh, a danger. 
or a threat to faith itself. Which explains why the discussion on faith in chapter 11 verse 1 through chapter 12 verse 3 is surrounded on either side by discussions uh, about affliction. Well, look at how the argument unfolds here. In our consideration, he says, uh, and actually uh, some versions, my version, the New King James, begins the new section in verse 3, not not in verse 4. In our consideration, he says, of what Christ endured, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. In other words, here he begins his discussion on affliction by uh, bringing to mind what Christ endured. In considering that, he says, we must also consider what we have to endure as Christian people. Uh, Just as he had been saying before his discussion on faith in chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle of sufferings. And, And on he goes along those lines. Likewise, in the midst of the chapter on faith, uh, towards the end, as we saw last time in verse 35, he recounts uh, the triumph of faith in the midst of the sufferings, uh, even of the martyrs. Uh, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others at trial of mocking and scourging, jest and of chains and imprisonment. On and on he goes. The point is, uh, afflictions and faith uh, go hand in hand. They are very closely connected. And here he reminds us, having just spoken in chapter 12, verse 1, of the Christian life as a race to be run, so in, in chapter 12, verse 4, as a life full of striving against sin. Uh, look at that verse again. You have not yet resisted bloodshed, striving against sin. In the midst, in other words, of this great struggle in which you are engaged, in your pursuit of heaven itself, he says, quite frankly, you've not suffered as others have suffered. You haven't suffered to the point of shedding your blood, as he just recounted the end of chapter 11, the testimony of the martyrs. Well, to consider the martyrs, chapter 11, and especially to consider Christ and what he endured, chapter 12, verse 3, is, one would think, to place a check upon our own murmurings and our own complaints and our own displeasure with what we have to suffer. It's also to remind us, as we think of the testimony of the saints through the ages, and as we think of the life of Christ, that the Christian life is simply full of this sort of thing. He says, if we haven't died yet for Christ, then we know at least that we still have a long ways to go. So how ought we to face it? Well, the first thing that might help, as we find in this text, is a bit of honesty. And there's no lack of honesty here in what he says. In verse 11, he admits that trials uh, and suffering are not enjoyable. They're not joyful for the present time. They're painful. How does he put it exactly? He says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. And so there's no lack of honesty here. Verse 12, he admits, uh, as we'll see, that our hands are prone to droop down. In other words, we are prone, even though we are, we are told not to, to grow weary and discouraged in the midst of affliction. In verses 14 through 17, he tells us that the peace and the holiness of the church are placed in jeopardy in times of affliction, when uh, God is trying and testing the church. And these things will be lost, again, the peace and the holiness of the church, if not carefully guarded. 
And yet throughout it seems he's saying in these verses, once again, that the Christian life is simply full of this kind of thing. As we strive against sin, as we seek to have faith, as we seek to run the race with endurance, we find ever that afflictions lie close at hand. Which is why, uh, if, if you were to read Pilgrim's Progress alongside uh, Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, you would find a fitting description of the Christian life. As Christian is journeying to the heavenly city, what he finds throughout his journey is hardships over and over again, and difficulties and temptations to draw back and turn away. Now, there's an important reason for this, that the Christian life is full of difficulties, and it's our duty to understand what it is. That is indeed the work of faith. It's a work of discernment, spiritual discernment. And so having said that, in the second place, we should ask why they are there and what purpose do afflictions serve in the Christian life? Uh, A question which the text abundantly answers as a help to our faith. The simple answer is that they are there because God has placed placed them there. God is the bringer of trials, which is the whole point here. Something which we are finding again and again in Exodus. We'll see it again tonight. They journey on and what do they find? A new trial. And throughout their wilderness wanderings, we find that again and again the Lord was testing them. And he even says, as he says in chapter 16 explicitly, I'm testing you that I may know whether you will keep my law or not. In other words, he was trying their faith. He was trying their obedience. He was seeing what was in them. Well, that's not only what you find in Exodus. That's what you find today. It's what you find in the New Testament. The situation is no different. God is still trying the faith of his people. And so the author here is saying, in the midst of uh, a church here, we know that was under great strain. And people uh, were suffering for their faith. And he's calling them just to endure a little bit longer, but recognizing some of them were beginning to complain. They were despising even what the Lord was doing. Some were ready to turn back. In fact, some had. This is what he says, in essence, to the church. When you complain against your trials, you're committing a very great sin. You're forgetting that God is the one who does this, and he does so for good reason. Yes, I know it's easy to despise afflictions and to become discouraged by them, to think that God is against us because he afflicts. But such an outlook is carnal. It betrays a lack of wisdom and discernment, and most importantly, a lack of faith. It fails to see the hand of God. That God is dealing with you. That he is expressing his own displeasure for your sin. As well as his great love for you. That's, that's the message of uh, the apostle here to the church. Uh, and with that kind of summary. Uh, I think we realize that in the face of affliction. There is a lot to think about. And the work of faith uh, is, is indeed a great work. The first thing faith ought to comprehend is that God is the one who's dealing with us in our afflictions. If you look at verse 7, notice that especially, setting aside for a moment the idea of our sonship. We'll get to that, but just look at the phrase, if you endure chastening, God deals with you. And try to think of what that means, for God to deal with you, for the hand of God to rest upon you, for the hand of God to afflict and to chasten. To realize this, beloved, is always solemn to be dealt with by God. It is to be confronted with his own holiness and in his holiness, his attitude towards sin. And we also see because of this, because God, who is holy, is dealing with us. It becomes an opportunity to partake of his holiness. Verse 10. 
but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Well, of course, if God would deal with us, a God who is holy, it would be in order that we might partake of his holiness. And so I don't think it's wrong to say that the ground of affliction upon which we stand is holy ground. No less than the ground upon which Moses stood when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Bush was holy ground. It's holy because God is in it and because God is revealing himself to the believer. Which is also why, as for Moses, it's so dangerous to stand upon. That's another thing we have to realize. That as we are afflicted by the Lord, there are two possibilities. And there are two opportunities. It's the same two things we've been seeing throughout the epistle. Either, as we saw in the case of the martyrs, our trials will become the opportunity and the occasion for the flourishing of faith. When faith shines brightest. And indeed, it always does. It's the testimony of the martyrs. Never did faith shine so brightly as it did in them. As indeed it shone so brightly in the death of Christ our Savior. Consider him. Look to him and his faith. But recognize equally that afflictions present another possibility. One which is terrible. Almost too terrible to utter. And that is of apostasy. Which we will see comes in at the end. Well think of what God is doing once you realize in the moment of trial that it is God who is dealing with you. He is for one thing expressing his love. Which is very important to see. It's the thing that they were forgetting and which we are prone to forget. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged uh, when you are rebuked by him. For the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He's expressing his love. Of course, we know the temptation is to think the opposite, to imagine that uh, God is actually contending with our persons, that as he afflicts, he is against us. The reason he tries us is because he hates us. That is the outlook of the flesh. And that is the temptation which Satan, uh, uh, which, uh, Satan presents to the believer in the moment of trial. But that isn't true. What he says here is that he's contending against our sin, not ourselves. In other words, remember the description of the Christian life in verse 4, which really sets the tone for all these verses. You haven't uh, suffered to the point of shedding your blood in your striving against sin. And what he's saying in fact is that God is joining you in the fight. He is setting himself against your sin. He is striving against your sin in ways that you're unable to do yourself. In other words, he's enabling you to get the victory. Which you are longing to achieve in your own struggle against sin. Grace to help in time of need. Did you ever think that would come in the form of affliction? Well it does, he says. An expression of the love of God. An opportunity to partake of his holiness. As by affliction, sin is mortified in the believer. The hand of God is holy, beloved. And to be touched by that hand, to be dealt with by it, is always to become a partaker of his holiness. Or at least that's always the opportunity. That's always the possibility. And trials viewed like this become always rich opportunities for sanctification. We ought to think in the moment of trial, here is a holy God who would deal with me as a son. Ought I to despise his dealings with me? Or should I regard all that he does as holy and humbly submit? And so he's expressing the love of a father, not just his love, but the fact that he regards us as sons whom he loves. Verses 
uh, 5 through 7. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? The truth is, he's saying, and as he'll say in the next verse, it's actually the one the Lord doesn't chasten, who isn't the true son, who is illegitimate. Verse verse 8, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And that, I would say, is a very dangerous place to be. I always worry about Christians whose lives are inexplicably easy. They seem to be free of trials and hardship, especially, let me say, not just Christians, but pastors. I don't quite know what to make of them. I wonder if they know anything of the hand of the Lord. What it is for a God who is holy to deal with them. Well, let us realize that to be dealt with uh, by that hand isn't easy. And it's often very painful, but sin has made it so. God cannot deal with us as a father. He cannot express his love and not at times seem severe because our sin is very offensive to his holiness. But the point is, the mere fact that he is dealing with us shows us that he loves us. The fact that in our sin, he does not forsake us. That is the truest proof and the surest sign of his love, the love of a father for a son. And so he goes on dealing with us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he wants us to be rid of the one thing that harms us most and that is most offensive to him in his holiness. Chastening us, correcting us, so long as sin remains. Yes, but I say again, it's the one he leaves alone that you have to worry about. That's the one who might truly know nothing about God. In all of this, we need to view ourselves as children, spiritual children, Christ's little ones who are tenderly cared for and dearly loved. But as to spiritual things, things which concern God's holiness and the life of heaven, they are babes which is all of us, we are babes as concerns spiritual matters. Babes who stand in need of constant correction so long as sin remains. And don't you ever say otherwise. Until I am perfect, I always stand in need of my Father's correction. Accordingly, it is needful that we be in subjection to our Heavenly Father, verses 9 and 10. We see that just as God gave us earthly fathers to correct us and to train us in righteousness, so he deals with us only more so. He is training us, verse 11, as children to partake of something glorious, something that awaits us, something that he's promised us in the life to come, namely the peaceable fruit of righteousness and the joys and the glories of heaven. And so if anything, we ought to be thankful if sin is what we're really striving against, that God should afflict us and that he, by afflicting us, should set his face against our sin. For we, along with him, have set our face against our sin. We ought to be thankful. Sin can be quite stubborn, you know, and hard to get rid of. Sometimes we find for all of our efforts, we just can't get rid of it. But God is able to help us, and he is helping us. He's not only a wise father who knows what is best for his children, but to change the metaphor, he's a wise physician who knows how to cure the disease And affliction is the cure. It's one of many. It's one of the best. Which by faith and a long uh, journey in the Christian life we discover to be so. And so it comes to this once again. When trials come, we ought to exercise faith. 
And this requires more than we see, more than that we see what God is doing. We ought to ask ourselves, why is he doing it? Not in a general, but in a particular way. In general, we know that he is against our sin. We know that he loves us. We know that he wants us to partake of his holiness. Those are uh, the kinds of general truths that you can always count on. And every trial has a way of revealing these things in a new way. The question I am asking is, can we possibly be more specific than that? Are we able to ask, in other words, what sin in particular has occasioned his displeasure and fatherly chastisement on this occasion? What is God saying to me just now? That too, I would say, is the work of faith. And I would bring in, as I did last time, and from the same book, John Owen, in support of this point. From his book, Spiritual Mindedness. Listen to how he describes the spiritually minded believer. In other words, the man who has faith and know what it is to, knows what it is to exercise faith. He says, the first thing a spiritually minded person thinks about is what God is saying to him in the daily circumstances of life. Especially in times of great calamities and disasters. The spiritually minded person knows that nothing happens by chance, but that God orders and controls everything that ever happens. And so tries to discover the meaning and purpose of every situation. When God brings about terrible disasters in the world, we must know how to come to a right understanding of what he is saying by them. I must first ask myself if God is saying something to me. I must diligently examine myself if there is any wickedness in me that God has called uh, that has caused God to show his displeasure and so on. In other words, Owen is saying, and I'm in agreement with Owen here. I think this is the whole spirit of this passage. That when God brings new trials to the world, which affect the church, the first question isn't what is God saying to the world? But that the spiritually minded person who is faith is more interested in knowing what God is saying to me. And that becomes the work of faith, the work of discernment. Trying to discern what God is saying to me in the daily circumstances of life, especially in the hour of trial. It's a wonderful quote and one which I confess I did not expect from a reformed author, still less a Puritan author such as John Owen. You should look for meaning in every season of life. And yet that's what he's saying, isn't it? And he's only saying what the apostle is saying here. That you really ought to ask yourself when God is chastising you. Why is he doing it? What is he trying to teach me? There's got to be some lesson, some spiritual truth. It is my duty to try to discern it. To, to, to discern that it's not only his fatherly love and his hatred for sin. But also the particular thing he wants me to see. Why else would he chastise me? There's something in my life he wishes to correct. Something that offends his holiness. What is it? That is the work of faith. And that is the work which the man who is spiritually minded is constantly engaged in. But let me say this as well. That not every affliction deserves to be called fatherly chastisement at the same time. This is something Peter makes us aware of in his, uh, in his epistle and which we know is surely true. Uh, the reality is sometimes we're just too spiritual for our own good. And we're too ready to baptize everything uh, in our lives. When the reality is we might find, as Peter tells us, 
that some of the hardships we suffer are because of our own foolishness and our own sin. In other words, we've only brought it on ourselves. And it doesn't do us much good at that point to say, well, what is God teaching me here? We ought rather simply to repent. Real wisdom knows the difference. And we ought to get such wisdom for ourselves, the kind Owen is speaking of here. True spiritual mindedness, true spiritual discernment. And to recognize when the hand of the Lord is upon us. And then to ask, what is it that hand is seeking to teach me? But let me go further still. And all of this, you see, he's describing our whole attitude about this. He's telling us how to face it and what to keep in mind when we have to face hardships as Christian people. Especially, as I say, when we are conscious that the Lord himself is dealing with us. He's dealing with our sin, our faith, and so forth. But one of the troubles we have, and I'm about to list several troubles we run into, is that we lack patience. The reality, if we're honest... If you ever go to a prayer meeting, you'll realize that the majority of the prayer requests are, Lord, take this trouble out of my life as quickly as possible. We lack patience. Well, do you see in verse uh, verse 7 that the idea of endurance comes in once again? If you endure chastening, in other words, if you just have a little bit of patience to endure what the Lord is bringing into your life. Exactly what he said at the end of chapter 10, verse 36. There is need for endurance for yet, yet a little while. And he will come. But the trouble, as I say, is that we lack patience. In verse 4, we see him saying this. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In other words, again, you lack patience. As though to say, have you really suffered that much and that long? Be serious. Did we really think getting to heaven would be easy and free of hardships and trial? So that's the next thing. Uh, Also, we find from verse four, we lack a sense of perspective and proportion. We treat, let us be honest, a little difficulty like it's the end of the world. We're so petty sometimes as Christian people. We know that God will not send us more than we can bear. Do we believe that or not? So it is, you see, again, a test of faith, which brings me to the next thing that we doubt God's goodness and fatherly love. And he says that explicitly in verse Uh, Verse five, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Every time you grumble, every time you uh, despise and become discouraged. You have forgotten that God deals with you as sons, sons whom he tenderly loves. That is exactly what we forget when we grumble against God and our hardships, however small they may be. If we think again of Israel here, how ready she was always uh, to imagine the worst things about God in the wilderness. At the first instance of hardship, no matter how many uh, good deeds the Lord did, even miracles in her midst, with every fresh trial, she complained against the Lord. And what she was really saying uh, with each instance of murmuring is that God is not really so good as he seemed And perhaps he is no father after all. Yes, they would believe only so long as things were easy. But they had no appetite or willingness to endure hardship. They were weak, soft believers. And we are not surprised to find they really had no faith at all. Yes, but look at what he says here. God is only expressing his love for you. You bore well enough the chastisement of your parents. Will you not do the same with the father father of spirits and live? You see, 
It's just a lack of perspective and proportion. A failure to see what God is doing. And only faith can set us right. But then it's also just plain disobedience. This is where the idea of subjection comes in. Verse 9. We who we uh, who we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? In other words, in subjection to the rod, the rod which corrects as a father. But the point here is simply we as children ought to look to God, not simply as the father who loves, but as the father who leads In other words, the one who is in charge, the one who possesses authority over ourselves and not we ourselves. We are but his children. And the test is simply, will we obey him or not? And will we follow him, though he leads in the way of difficulty? That's the test which the church, as Israel, always finds in the wilderness. A simple question, are we willing to follow him? And then finally, follow and submit, I should say. Finally, a lack of hope. This is the third difficulty we run into. Verse 11. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What he's saying there is that our hearts are set too much on the present time. And especially on our present afflictions and too little on the outcome of it all. We've lost sight of what it is that God is preparing us for. The great goal of the Christian life. Look at what God is doing, he's saying. Isn't it all glorious? The outcome of it all. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. That is to say, the life of heaven itself, which has been the focal point of the whole letter. When at long last the believer sets aside the labors and the toils of this life. And he enters into the rest and the joys of heaven. Do you see what he's preparing us for? And what he's training for us to uh, to enjoy and participate in? And haven't you begun to see even now the peaceable fruit of righteousness in your own life? The way that is God is refining and perfecting you. How he is increasing your faith and spiritual joy. And how he is giving you an appetite for spiritual things and even for heaven itself. By so many trials he is weaning you from a love of this world. And especially by great hardships, he's saying, this world is not meant to last. It is but a passing city. And I would have you seek and find the city which has foundations of whose builder and founder I am. But seeing all that now in the third place, let me say this next. That every belief or every trial ought to be turned by the believer for profit. In other words, to use the language of the Puritans, and as we come now to verses 12 through 17, we find a slightly different emphasis, and that is we ought to improve our trials. That's how Matthew Henry speaks. I'll read that in a moment. That's how the Puritans would speak. We ought to see in every trial an opportunity uh, to enjoy something better than we presently possess. He told us uh, in the prior verses, before we come to verse 12, that God is not seeking to harm us, but... He is seeking our profit, and it behooves us to seek the same. If he would sanctify us by our afflictions, verse 10, let us see that we are sanctified by them. But one of the great dangers that affliction presents to the believer, and especially to the church, and we ought to notice that is his perspective here, not just the individual believer, but the corporate running of the race of the body of believers, 
And the danger which uh, they confront together in running this race is that our hands begin to droop down. And maybe not my hands, but I notice my brother's hands begin to droop down. And even he finds uh, the afflictions create a terrible opportunity for one of my brothers to fall away from the faith. That is to apostatize. Now that isn't difficult to see, I wouldn't think. How trials would create this terrible possibility. Periods of trial and especially of persecution are times not only when weariness and discouragement abounds in the church, but especially apostasy. When God is trying the church, uh, people fall away at a far greater rate, just as Judas did in the moment of Christ's trial, which was also the moment of the disciples' trial. But they are also, as I've been saying, thank God, wonderful opportunities for the flourishing of faith as spoken of in chapter 11. Well, listen to what Matthew Henry says about this. Again, coming now to verses 12 through 17 with verses 4 through 11 in the background. He says, where afflictions and sufferings for the sake of Christ are not considered by men as the chastisement of their heavenly father. It's verses 4 through 11. And improved as such, they will be dangerous, a dangerous snare and temptation to apostasy, which every Christian should carefully watch against. In other words, verses 4 through 11, see these things as fatherly chastisement and seeing them as such, verses 12 through 17, improve them. Otherwise, as we'll find at the end of those verses, they will be to us a dangerous snare and temptation to apostasy, which every Christian should carefully watch against. Again, to quote Matthew Henry. So notice, uh, looking at these verses in that way, verses 12 through 17, how he tells us to improve our sufferings, to get uh, to get profit out of them, to draw value out of them, to sanctify them for our benefit. And let us remember for the benefit of the church at large, which again is his main interest. The first thing he says in verse 12 is to strengthen the hands which hang down. In other words, as you look out in the running of the race, which is a corporate endeavor, you notice in periods of trial that there are some who, some who have slackened the pace. And instead of running, their hands are now drooping down. Their heads are hanging down. They're weary. They're discouraged. Do you ever notice that in running the race? Do you ever come across a brother who is discouraged and in need of some encouragement? Well, here is a time, he's saying, for Christian fellowship to shine forth. To express that as a concern for your brother. To use your own faith to strengthen his. In other words, to do what he said earlier on. As his outlook throughout the letter has been not on the individual believer, but upon the church. But exhort one another, he says, chapter 3, verse 13, daily, while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Again, it's the same concern there. Do you realize that some of us might become so discouraged that, uh, that he might fall away? Look out for such a one. Strengthen him. Encourage him. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Remember that the race which is set before us is not to be run alone, but that together as as a Christian church, we are striving to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Chapter 10, verse 22, and to run the race with endurance together. Likewise, chapter 12, verse 13, 
He says, make straight paths for your feet. And here he is speaking of yourself. In other words, stick to the path. Do not waver this way or that. The race and the path are set before you. You must not forsake the way to go away of your own choosing or your own devising. To forsake the way which is set before you is the essence of apostasy. Stick to the path. Make straight paths for your feet. But then verses 14 through 17 especially interest us since they're so commonly quoted among Christians. They're commonly quoted because of the famous expression, pursue holiness without which no one can see the Lord. But as always, we ought to notice the context in which that pursuit is described. It is described in the context of what he has called the great race in which we are engaged. Running the race with endurance, chapter 12, verse 1. Running the race together as one body, together as pilgrims seeking the heavenly city. And in that we ought to pursue holiness. Not only that, but he's speaking to Christians, we remember, who were called to endure hardships in the midst of afflictions. And in the midst of this, he says, first, they must pursue peace with all. Peace with their brothers. Peace with God. And peace, especially, I would think, with those who afflict them. That is the way to improve an affliction, beloved. Especially if ever you should, hu- you should suffer at the hands of men. Not to curse, not to revile, but to bless. To be at odds with men in times of distress is not to improve a trial, is to let the trial get the best of you. Consider Christ once again and what he endured. All of the hostility he endured from men. All that he suffered in this life and especially on the cross. Never once did we see him blaspheme God. Never once did we see him curse man. Never once did we see him give in to the spirit of temptation and sin. Likewise, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this emphasis here can hardly be surprising again as we set this exhortation in the context of the whole of the letter. The whole of the letter has especially been a description of the holiness of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but the holiness of heaven. To see heaven now as a sanctuary, as a place of holiness, which has been sanctified now by the sprinkled blood. And by, uh, by whose blood we are now able to inhabit, even as sinners. It's been sanctified to us. And the whole goal of the Christian life through Christ's priesthood is to see God. And especially to behold his holiness. There is nothing more natural that could be said at this point in the epistle. In the midst of hardships to tell the church, pursue holiness. For that is what he's been describing all along. And to tell us that without holiness no man can see the Lord. God would have us to partake of his holiness, verse 10. That's why he afflicts us. The question he asks here, speaking to us again as those who are called to run the race with endurance in the midst of great sufferings, is that our pursuit? Is that our heart's desire? Have we set our hearts on Christ? Have we set our hearts on heaven? Have we desired even now to partake of his holiness? Are we seeking to see him? To behold and partake of his holiness. To share even now in the life of heaven, which is a life of uninterrupted holiness. Yes, indeed, we know without holiness it is impossible to see God. But pursue it, he says. Pursue it just as things get difficult. And especially then. Especially when the trials tempt you to sin. 
That's when you ought to seek to be holy. See it as the great aim which God is seeking in your trials for you. See it as the thing he is producing above all by afflicting you so that you begin to seek it as well. He only wants you to partake of his holiness. And so you pursue, in other words, not to be free of whatever thorns God places on in your sides. But only that that thorn may be turned to some spiritual profit, to some holy end. That is the way to improve a trial. And these indeed are the sons of God. Those who know what it is to find the sufficiency of God's grace in every trial is Paul. Yes, but not holiness without peace and still less peace without holiness. Don't separate them. Look again at the verse. Pursue peace of all people and holiness. Pursue them both together and never apart. Matthew Henry again. True Christian peaceableness is never found separate from holiness. We must not under pretense of living peaceably with all men leave the ways of holiness. But cultivate peace in a way of holiness. Don't see them at odds. I know that's the temptation. Well we want to be at peace so we have to lessen the standard. That is not the way. The way to run the way, the race, is to pursue both at once. It is the combined pursuit of peace and holiness that sanctifies every trial and brings with it great profit. But he goes further in verse 15 when he says, Looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Now, I know in some of your versions that appears as another imperative, but in fact, it is a participle. In other words, it ought to have the the letters I-N-G, not look carefully, but looking carefully as a description, as a way of telling us how to pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The way to do so is looking out for such a one, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. In other words, viewing the corporate work of the church like he's been describing as a corporate pursuit of peace and holiness Look after this fellowship of ours, especially when it's under strain and trial, especially when we are conscious that God is dealing with us. The thing we have to look out for, especially at such times, is apostasy. That's the thing he means when he speaks of falling short of the grace of God. He isn't speaking of grace as a goal that we have to achieve. I don't think you know anything about grace if you could ever speak of it that way. When he says falling short of the grace of God. He's talking about one whom we discover is no Christian at all. Here is one we discover who who knows nothing of the grace of God. And trials, you know, uh, have a way of revealing this sort of thing. Those who know the grace of God and those who don't. Such a one, he tells us, going on with verse 15, become a root of bitterness, which describes... Not a state of the heart. I know that's the more common understanding, but it really makes no sense of the passage. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Do you see, in each of those he's describing not a state of the heart, but a person? A person who really doesn't belong. A person who, like Esau, whose presence defiles and corrupts. A a person whose presence sows bitterness and bears bitter fruit in the life and the fellowship of the church. Who disrupts and disturbs the peace and the holiness of the church. Someone who profanes and defiles the sanctuary of Christian fellowship. 
Look out for such persons, he's saying, in your pursuit of peace and holiness. Remember Esau, verses 16 and 17, how he gave up his birthright for a pot of stew. He traded spiritual blessings, which he did not regard as having any value for temporal comfort. He gave up the best thing God gave him for a single meal. He gave up the one thing that matters for something that didn't. He forfeited the one thing he couldn't lose for something he couldn't keep. What a fool he was. And he becomes a picture of apostasy. And how careful we must be to call such persons back. Once we, once we see them straying. Once we begin to see their hands drooping down. And even begin to wonder is this one falling away. Call him back. One who is ready to give up the hardships of the Christian life. For the ease of apostasy. And if they will not heed. Then to do what we must in order to preserve the peace and holiness of the church. Which is to cast such persons out of the church. See to it he says that there is no root of bitterness. And if you find one to pluck it out and to throw it out. You see that is the point here. How you can't have peace and holiness when these kinds of roots spring up. Their whole tendency is to defile and to produce bitterness and enmity. You can't abide their presence. Our fellowship is too important. And our own faith and spiritual mindedness is too easily lost if we long abide their presence. Pursue peace and holiness, he says, without which no one will see the Lord. So the effect of it all is to say, practically, as we come to a close, I want you to have faith. I want you to especially have faith in the hour of trial. When God tries the church and to try to see what he's doing, to look out not only after your own faith, but the faith of your brother. Always see faith as something which is practical. It tells you how to live. It tells you how to view all things that happen to you. It brings meaning into every circumstance of life, even the hardest circumstances. And it tells you what kind of fellowship we ought to have and seek to find in the church, even when she is under great strain. And let us all seek to have a faith like this. Amen. And uh, now let us come to the table.